Mr. Mystery Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, mother... everybody i'm dan and i'm mike so welcome to 15 minute film fanatics this is our season six finale episode we just want to say before we start getting into it that we're so excited about this we're so glad that people have listened please tell your friends about the podcast please let us know what to watch on twitter at 15min film please leave us reviews wherever you can we really really want to keep the show going and we will we will after a brief holiday hiatus but we just want to say thank you to all the listeners out there Okay, good. All right, let's start. So today, for our finale episode, we're doing everybody's favorite Christmas film, Die Hard. The 1988 classic directed by John McTiernan, who, who everyone in the world has seen, um, which Mike has memorized, and which I, interestingly, have not seen since I saw it in the movies. That must that's be how long a weird it's, experience. Yeah, that's how long it's been since I've seen Die Hard. I've seen all the sequels when they came out, but I have not seen Die Hard since 1988. So I'm ready to talk about what it was like to watch it again for the podcast. Yeah, why don't you kick off with that? Because this is this is the movie where uh, every husband sitting on the couch goes, Die Hard's a Christmas movie, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we're doing it for the finale. So that we're not even going to debate that because when I told my kids we were doing Die Hard, they said, are you going to talk about whether it's a Christmas movie? I said, there's no debate. It's a Christmas it's movie. It's undoubtedly a Christmas movie. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, I have a lot to say about it in reference to other classic Hollywood cinema. But what was it actually like to see that again for the first time since it came out? It's such a time capsule of, of the country, of the way we thought about things, of movies back to 1988. So, for example, there, there's obviously big things like you can't watch a movie about a skyscraper under attack and not think of 9-11, right? Um, you can't watch um, a movie where a guy gets on a plane and shows the other guy he's a gun. He's like, that's okay. I've been doing this for 11 years. Or, you know, um, so that kind of like reminds you of how much things have changed. But there's also little things like for, like um, the fact that um, Bruce Willis is smoking in the airport or even that you're allowed to have the hero smoke because it's cool. Just not not because it does anything. It just, like the same reason that Bogart smoked in every movie. The same reason we like to watch Robert Mitchum smoke in, in Out of the Past. It's just cool, and and it, he he does that even in the airport, which I think is funny. It's funny to watch it again and see what works and what doesn't. So one thing that and I, and I can watch Die Hard a hundred more times, and I probably will this week. But something that doesn't work is the comedy. The jokes are all have all become very very stale. And I don't know if we're going to get um, hate tweets for this, but the jokes have become very, very stale. All of those jokes that are written to make the audience go, yeah, like with Argyle and things like that, none of them work. But it's but enough of the movie works that it's, it's fun to watch. And I don't mean Yippie Kaye. Yippie Kaye is immortal. That will last forever. But I'm talking about those things designed to get a big rise out of the audience. I find myself laughing not at those moments, but laughing at other moments that aren't necessarily laugh lines, like the audaciousness of things. Do you ever find that there are lines like in his girl Friday, for example, that, that don't work or were written for a contemporary audience. And, but so 95% of the movie uh, sparkles and only 5% is, is left behind. 
Yeah. So this one, it's trying to, it's exa- exactly because you don't always, I mean, not, you can't bat a thousand, but it's amazing. Like I smile and grin much more at him wrapping the fire hose around himself. That, that makes me laugh out loud and not in a sense of mockery, but just in a sense of pure joy in a way that all the like, bah, 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 like the forced audience crowd pleaser lines do. No, it's, it's a laugh. Like it's a laugh straight out of the writer's room. Cause you can imagine, right. You, you have a, you have a problem and you're eating a Twinkie and drinking coffee and you finally gotten your hero exactly where he needs to be, but he's on the wrong floor. So he's got to, you know, he's got to do something. They, they say that um, Thackeray, when he thought up the title Vanity Fair, he leapt out of bed uh, and paced around the room screaming until his neighbors told him to shut up. And that's that's the kind of moment that the that the fire hose is. Well, what's great about the fire hose moment, too, and then I'll let you let you talk for a second. The thing that that reminded me of how far action movies have come is that I remember. I mean, I remember everything about it, seeing it for the first time. But when he wrapped himself the first time you see him do that and wrap the fire hose around himself on a big screen movies being where they are that was that was it that was that was the topper you're not going to top this thing but now in action movies there's there's two things that are going on in action movies now the star has to somehow be involved in actually doing the stunts. So there was just a story last week about Keanu Reeves jumping off a building for real, making the new Matrix movie. Tom Cruise, we know, uh, being Tom Cruise, does does all his own stunts. There was a story a couple of weeks ago about him being on the air, uh, the wing of an airplane, practicing. And I'm making air quotes here, practicing for something in mission in the next Mission Impossible movie. So that's you got to do that, and also that the stunts have to keep upping themselves. So if you're going to make Mission Impossible Seven where you do all the stuff in the helicopter. Well, now what's Mission Impossible 8 going to be? The Die Hard movies had to keep upping themselves as well in, in certain ways. But I remember thinking that that was, you could not top the fire hose thing. But now all action movies are about topping the one that came before it. So that's Die Hard as an action movie. I brought up His Girl Friday for a reason. What's the <laughs> other thing that Die Hard has in common with His Girl Friday? Well, the getting the couple back together. It's a comedy of remarriage, yes. which is the, which is the only honorable way that the that the American cinema could could deal with the kinds of problems that they had to deal with was to make it a couple that had that had split up at the time, um, and so it's it's you know relationship it's love affirming to everybody when they get back together. And in fact, like I, I, Die Hard has a couple of things going on that are really interesting. So the first is that it harkens back in its structure to classical Hollywood cinema, but I think it's also playing off of the 70s disaster movie because I think I forgot what a big genre that is until every channel comes out with like their classic movie lineup. But it's it's all um, BS disaster movies that you never wanted to see. It's like aboard the Queen Mary three, you know. But it was it was sinking, and then uh, you know, a pagoda pulls some lady out of a out of a room and saves her from drowning. Well, it's like the Towering Inferno or the Poseidon Adventure. Exactly. So it's 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 not original in its structure. It's classic Hollywood in its structure. It's not even original in its genre. It's the best version of the disaster movie from American cinema that I could probably just pull off of, off the top of my head. Uh, I think what makes it work though uh, is brilliant casting. Even Hall, even Holly is good. The cop is great. You know, obviously Bruce Willis Urkel's, is Bruce Urkel's, Willis. Uh, the guy from Family Matters. <laughs> uh, the guy from Flame, uh, who played Carl Winslow. But uh, but above all, it's got the perfect hateable villain. Well, let's talk about him in part two because he's I am he's he's involved in my moment. Sure. Okay, so welcome back. Of course, in part two, we're going to talk about the scenes that we think are indicative of the themes of the film as a whole. Dan, you first. So sure. My moment is when you find out for the first time that the terrorists really aren't terrorists and that they're thieves and that this whole thing was to convince, you know, obviously to to get the FBI involved and to shut down the building so that they can steal these um, 
these bonds, these bearer bonds, and, and take them wherever they want. And the line is that Hans Gruber says, well, you can live for, very well on 20% of $600 million or whatever it is. And I think that's so funny because it, it's the most it's the most work you'd have to do for 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 the most amount of money, but you you can live very well on the interest from a much smaller amount of money without involving, without creating international incident and, and going into this plan. And I'm not saying it to make fun of the movie because the, the joy of the movie is, is, is how silly. And I mean that as a compliment, so much of it is, but it's the most ludicrous, you know, a poorly designed plan ever created by people who are presumably smart. And I bring that up because movies have taught us that that nefarious plans must be complex. They've got to be complicated. You have to have a lot. And we've all learned from Die Hard. You got to have a guy that could work the computer system to hack into a building. And then and then what does he what do they all say once once they I'm in. I'm in, right? That's what they say. I'm in this. You can make the elevators work. We've seen that. So What's funny is that I thought of the Raymond Chandler essay. He has a great essay called The Simple Art of Murder. And he says that fiction has taught us that crime is really complicated and crimes must be these really Baroque elaborate things. But the hardest ones to solve are the ones that got planned 30 seconds before they happened or like true crimes of passion. And it, it, it just made me laugh when I watched this again to, to think of Raymond Chandler, because of course he got all that grief for The Big Sleep when both the novel came out and when Faulkner wrote the screenplay. And, you know, there was the famous story where, where, where um, they were working on the script. Faulkner was working on the screenplay. He called Raymond Chandler. He said, who killed Owen Taylor? Who killed the chauffeur? And I don't know if you know the story, but do you know what Raymond Chandler said? No. He said, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like he, he couldn't, he didn't care. And, and that was sometimes seen as, as, a, as a weakness of the book in the movie. I think that's a strength of the big sleep. I think that's a strength of the book and the strength of the movie. I think the big sleep's a terrific, but here it's kind of funny how we've all come to accept, like we talked about Matrix, we talked about James Bond movies, Mission Impossible, that if you're going to be a bad guy, your plan has to be unbelievably elaborate. And I think that Die Hard draws, and, draws on that to make Hans Gruber even more um, nefarious. So your moment ties into my moment because uh, maybe Hans Gruber is the most nefarious uh, person in the movie, but who's the most despicable person in the movie? I, I know exactly who it is. It's um, Holly's Ellis, the the coke sniffing um, uh, on the coke sniffing um, huckster. That's exactly right. Now he goes in under the pretense, like so, right? So the criminals come in under one pretense, and then you right. find out their their real motivation. He goes in under the pretense of protecting her, but his real motivation is to save his own butt. Exactly the same, right? It's it's only it's just self preservation and wealth. He goes in to to cut a deal. So the the beautiful thing is that there's this weird. Um, there's this weird strata that the, that the movie makes possible of like um, people by their motivations, um, by how much by how much we admire them, or we're supposed, or the film is allowing us to admire them, or, or wants us to admire them. Uh, even amongst the terrorists themselves, they're still stratified. Like we don't have to go, we don't have to go through right. all the strata, but it's clear who's on the top and who's on the bottom, and then it's a weird criminal sandwich um, in between, including all the like all the people on the outside um, that are that are talking about uh, the. Ne- like negotiating to try to get into the building um, and the the other people that operate Nakatomi Plaza, like besides the people that work at Holly's company, right? Because you could have had, John could have, first of all, could have done anything, right? Think of, think about the era, think about the movies that were, were being made. Um, John could have been ex-military from Vietnam and now work as a bond trader in just some other building. And they could be equally divorced, but that's, but it doesn't work. He's got to be a New York City police detective who cares about nothing else Right. Except like Holly and then uh, uh, maybe saving his marriage or getting his life back on track. Right. That's that's why they can't actually live in the same city. Right. They, they can't live in the same city. He's got to travel from New York uh, to L.A. 
in order for that whole thing to work because it's part of a grand gesture. Although he's got his um he's got his wedding ring off right. at the beginning, of course. So to your so to your point that maybe the details don't necessarily need to matter from a Raymond Chandler standpoint, but you could do the same thing with the big sleep. Everybody's moral alignment and affiliation is ambiguous and it and it can be teased out. And so I just I find that a really interesting moment where revealing that they're not terrorists, but they're criminals. Uh, just at the point when they seem to have sunk in your estimation, it's like, well, at least they can be honest because it's clear <laughs> it's clear who's on the bottom rung. And then just above him um, is the uh, FBI negotiator outside played by uh, Paul Gleason, uh, who just plays an a-hole in every single movie he's ever been in and every part like that was written for him. I think he, he's also the... Um, He's the principal in the Breakfast Club, right? Yes. He also pulls it. We talked before about tropes that you see from Die Hard that come with other movies. The higher up you are in law enforcement, the dumber you are and and the less likely you are to take advice or listen to other people. I mean, that's like, you know, in The Big Sleep as well. Like, you know, those detectives, the noir detectives are always smarter than the actual real detectives that are paid by the city of Los Angeles or the city of New York. And here, you know, the higher, the FBI is, he's the worst guy on the scene at the plaza. And I, I think that that's also why John, John has to bleed. The other thing that Die Hard brings into the genre uh, is that like Bruce Willis has put more and more and more and more on the line from, you know, from the flight all the way to the end. And so there, there's an emotional journey of getting to like him too. Meanwhile, we become so attached to, to these to these villains, but they're killed. They're kind of killed off in order of where they are in the strata. Like if you yeah. want to, if you want to actually figure out where somebody lies, you, you got to wait to see when they're taken out. Which is why Hans Gruber is such a such a great character. It's like the red shirts in Star Trek. The red shirts in Star Trek who beam down on the planet and die in the first five minutes. They're the equivalent of the guy who has the the, the shirt and it says, "Now I have a machine gun." Ho ho ho. You know, it's also one last thing you said. It's interesting that they have to build in a likability factor for Bruce Willis, because one thing that I was thinking of when I watched it again was um, you, we, none of us can imagine what it was like to see this and have Bruce Willis be relatively unknown or only known from moonlighting or have him this be as big, not just because he has hair in this movie, but because this it was such a new idea that this guy from moonlighting who played, you know, Sybil Shepherd's kind of devil may care, you know, kind of wacky counterpart would, would be this action hero. Yeah, it's it's a great time period of Hollywood reinvention. Although I will say that Bruce Willis um, has is multiple reinventions unto himself. He's just one of those people that just never seems to go away, and he crops up every seven or eight years in a totally new kind of role. I mean, I I remember even when I was a kid, by the time he came out in Unbreakable, yeah, and you know, in the early two thousands, and he was the guy from Die Hard, just unwilling to let it go. Okay, so welcome back for part three. Dan, what do you have about the ending? I, I assume you don't want to touch on the title of this one. Yeah, <laughs> no, we'll, we'll pass on that one. But I think the ending is great because, again, like a time capsule, we are so used to the double ending. So in this movie, you know, the movie ends, they're reunited, the, the comedy of remarriage takes place, and then all of a sudden there's one more bad guy that's got to come out. And then, of course... He's got to get shot by the cop. So the movie ends twice, right? So we're used to that now. Not only are we so used to that, that now people are used to like post-credit scenes. So all these people going to see the new Spider-Man movie, you know, apparently like there's a credit, post-credit scene. No, no, there's two post-credit scenes as a way, as a way to get you to watch all the credits. So it's kind of funny, like how much movie movie makers have said, you know what, we're going to keep in the seats as long as we can. So that, I don't know if it's what people feel like they got their money's worth, but the idea that there'd be, there'd be um, now a thing called a post-credit scene that we all know what it is. When I think it was clever that when Die Hard did that, it was like in Fatal Attraction. Mm -hmm. Remember Fatal Attraction? That's got 
of two endings, right? But now, actually, when it happens with a villain, we kind of roll our eyes. We're like, how, you know, how long did it take this person to die? But how new it was in Die Hard and how striking it was and what a big surprise that was where we've all now been trained to that. So it, it, I find the movie very watchable in a way that I, I can't really explain. It's, it's kind of like Shawshank Redemption or, or something else, which I don't necessarily admire for its art, although I do like Die Hard quite a lot. But yeah. I, I just kind of know where I am at every single part of the movie. And it's and it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable in a, in a unique way. Like you could actually watch it once a year, just like yeah. any other holiday classic. I mean if you pushed me and you said, okay, name another kind of action movie, it'd be like Rambo. But the point of Rambo is that Rambo doesn't really have a personality, right? Which is, and and this uh, just leans all hard in the opposite direction in, you know, in his interplay with everyone, whether, whether it works or not, uh, he is engaging, he's charming, the, the script works. And so it, it, it's an immortal movie. Here, I think that, I think that Bruce Willis is, uh, I don't want to doubt his chops and other things, but he is a total movie star. There's something about him when you watch him that's very engaging. And it's the same reason why certain other actors we love so much, you know, draw us in the same way. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you back when we come back for season seven after a little hiatus. We're really glad that you've listened and, and you've gave us so many recommendations. Please keep them coming. Follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm and email us at 15MinuteFilm spelled out at gmail.com. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you next season.